You're listening to Cleveland Browns Daily on 850 ESPN Cleveland. Welcome to Cleveland Browns Daily, brought to you by Jack, the official entertainment partner of your Cleveland Browns. I am merely Bo Bishop. He is the Z, which stands for Zagura on the eve of the uniform reveal, Z. The excitement palpable. Oh, the excitement is palpable. You could cut it with a knife, as they say in the business. I'll tell you what, people are going to be pleased. It's exciting. I'm glad that it's here. I'm glad that not only is it going to cause joy, I believe, amongst our fan base, joy amongst the players. I've talked to a few of them who have gotten a sneak peek, as it were. They're very excited about them. Um, And, you know, it's also going to do a lot of good for the world with 100% of the proceeds from the sale of these jerseys going to COVID-19 relief. So. I'm fired up for it. It's a big day. A week after that, it will be the eve of the draft, and then we're rocking and rolling, baby. So this it's an exciting time. It's a fun time, and I think for Browns fans, it's something I know you guys have all been looking forward to, and uh, it'll be good to see these uniforms out there and to kind of give you that feel about the Cleveland Browns that you've wanted to have. And I think, you know, we talk about iconic franchises, iconic brands. When you look at it, you know exactly what it is, and, you know, I think the Browns got a little bit away from that, but they will be certainly getting back to that uh, as early as tomorrow. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It, it's going to be fun to see and uh, be, be fun to hopefully see him next year, uh, you know, in September out on the field is, is what you gun for at this point because it, it certainly is uh, It's a sweet look and uh, look forward to all you guys uh, seeing those tomorrow and, and sharing in the excitement of those. Do we know is, the time is set too, right? It's noon. We have that noon tomorrow is, I believe is when that, this is going to go. I believe, that is, I believe that's the case. I'm not sure if yeah. that's official, but that's, that's the expectation that I have, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think that is as well. Sometimes you lose – but with us all being remotely, I lose what's official and what's known. Like, right. Which, yes. Which is which at this right. point. But uh, that's my understanding as well. As we get into the OBM Hot Topics, Ohio Business Machine, preferred copier provider, your Cleveland Browns, all the X's and O's for your office, call 216-485-2000 or visit ohiobusinessmachines.com. Happy birthday to six. Baker Mayfield turning yeah. 25 years young uh, today. He is, you know, we haven't seen him in forever. First of all, normally we're no. we get to see him a little bit, a little bit of jocularity this time of year. We haven't got to haven't got to see Six in forever. Haven't talked to him in a in a really long time either. I would say that from the in terms of this incarnation of this program, without question, he is the he is the starring role in in this show that that you and I have done. Because if you go back to the first shows that you and I did, it was leading into that camp, and then it, you and I became officially uh, a show. But I think going into the opener uh, two years ago was yep. was that, and I remember pe- just uh, stubbornly and tirelessly uh, peppering you with questions about six uh, when you would have your copious notes at camp, and you would say, "Well, there's a plan, there's a plan, and we're excited. There's a plan," and I would just continue to needle you. When am I going to see six? When six? When six? We really like Tyrod. When six? Um, and then the pure the pure joy of him getting uh, to debut and having so many moments. Interesting, Z. I actually watched yesterday. Um, I was looking at our YouTube channel, ClevelandBrowns.com YouTube channel, and YouTube.com slash Browns, and the the number one most hits is him unplugged at the Cincinnati game. Yep. And and that the end of that is, I think, one of your greatest moments as a Big B, because <laughs> you are doing the stadium interview with him, and he cut, he runs right over. He's with Murph, and he runs right over, and you're doing the stadium interview with him. And and you give this incredible introduction to him, and the and it's about his turn to speak, but it, you stop 
because I, I swear it had to do with how much wrestling you've watched because 100%. it was very much an expert wrestling move on your part to understand the crowd. You take a breath and allow for it to kind of wash over him, and it's one of the coolest interviews. And I just want to get back to that, man. Like, I just want to get back to having fun at that stadium um, and him playing lights out and him playing like a gunslinger, um, and it was cool to revisit it yesterday. You know what it was, and that was the game that I said at the time, you know, people came to a game and a celebration broke out. That was a yeah. celebration of the Browns. I get uh, – you can't see – you guys so can't great. see. Bo can see. I got goosebumps uh-huh. right now thinking about it, yeah. and that was – That was one of the definite highlights of my tenure here with this team, which began in the 2013 season. And I know that it wasn't a game that even propelled us to the playoffs or anything, but it was the last home game of that year. It was the culmination of, man, we've got a lot of hope. We can do this. We've got our guy. We've got Baker Mayfield. He was on his way to setting the rookie touchdown record. And it was just a party. It was a Browns fan party. And yeah. Last year, we didn't have that at First Energy Stadium, unfortunately. It got away from us, and it got away from us immediately in week one against the Tennessee Titans. And yeah, Baker Mayfield's season didn't go how he wanted. The Browns' season didn't go how any of us wanted. And so you hope that you can get back to that. It's amazing to think that he's played two years in the league, and, and he's only turning 25. And I remember when I was 25, a long, long time ago. Great, A, a great age, and uh, I certainly wish him a very happy birthday and the best, and I hope that we can all get back to you know, the kind of football that we all want to see. And you know, what comes with that is fun. Winning is fun. Being productive is fun. And, and I think Browns fans, you know, are yearning for that fun again. And especially given the depression of real life right now and all that's happening in the world, uh, it would be certainly great. Yeah. I mean, Baker Mayfield and in, in both the good and the bad, right? He's been the star. He's been the star of the show. And when you are a franchise quarterback, of course, you're the star of the show, the good, the bad, the ugly. And we've had kind of a, a full gamut of it in, you know, basically what he came in. That was week three of last year. So he ended up making, you know, 13 starts, right. 16 last year. So in 29 starts, we've really had quite a roller coaster w- with six. And, and I think we're all looking for just a, a smooth ascension with no big, no big downhills uh, in 2020. Yeah, I, I think the thing that made last year difficult, there were lots, but beyond just the record was just – you remember last year when we would – we would give like our, our things that we were looking for in the game. We do it on a Friday. You know, here's the things that we're hoping to see, that type of things. And how many times did you and I say something to the effect of, we just want it to look right? Yep. I don't even, wins and losses. There was a point last year in the season where the wins and losses didn't matter too much. I mean, of course they matter. It's an absolute business. But the, the, what I was more interested in is let's just have this look right. Like, let's be able to have a rhythm offensively. Let's have him comfortable in the pocket. Let's have him st- – St- four, three, five, seven step drop, hit plant and fire. Let's have that stuff. And we didn't have it as much last year, not even close as the year before. And I think as you, tr- as you transition now ahead uh, to this year, and I think it's interesting how his birthday kind of created this. Cause there's a, a clip. I think we put it up of every touchdown pass that he threw. Yeah. And there are some spectacular throws in there that are just elite world-class throws that, that you know the best in this game make and and I think this offense will put him in position to do that on the reg that's the idea is to do that and that wasn't done a year ago nobody could have foreseen it coming uh but it wasn't done a year ago not consistently enough and I think it will be next year and it was this his birthday kind of give you a reason to look back on that rookie year he had and some of the rips that he that he let loose on that year were just absolute jaw droppers 
it, it, it's and that's why you have the hope. That's why you continue to believe that all of this is going to be exactly what we thought it was going to be last year. Just a year delayed, you know. Yeah. Uh, there are yeah unbelievable throws. Throw against Carolina was just an absolute rocket. There it were was. so many uh, in that second half of that season, and even last year there were some darn good ones as well. It's just you know it wasn't there consistent. And you said it. We wanted to see it look right. We wanted to just come out of there and be like, okay. Right. You know what? Things are going to get back. And oftentimes for 15 plays, it, it would look right. pretty good. And then after that, it was just like, whoa, right. what has happened here? But still so much talent. It's an offense that is 1 billion percent designed for his success. And yeah. I believe he's going to thrive. And I believe his 25th year will be a banner year, not only for him, but for the Cleveland Browns as they look resplendent in their new uniforms and, and harken back to the glory days of the Cleveland Browns. Oh, it's going to be fun. Browns. Oh, you love that. Yeah, you got to pay attention to the scores. We've been we've been talking about this for a long time, kids, if you've been paying attention to the scores. Yeah. Uh, Charles Robinson of Yahoo with kind of details on what this offseason plan is going to look like, Z. And the NFL and the players, you've come to an agreement on the terms of a virtual offseason. Qualified teams can now begin distributing their offseason program materials to players, and players can begin virtually working out to earn their workout bonuses. The NFL's offseason will remain virtual as long as all states with team facilities are under some kind of lockdown. This means NFL franchises cannot resume in-house work, OTAs, or any form of camps until all states with NFL facilities have removed lockdown restrictions. There was discussion about players living in lockdown states without NFL team facilities, but apparently settled on the blanket shutdown, only applying to states where facilities are located. Uh, the NFL clubs and players will come to their own agreement in terms of what benchmarks are to earn offseason bonuses. It will be on a team-by-team basis. However, all NFL players will be allowed $1,500 stipend for necessary workout equipment needed to fulfill workouts. Real quick, uh, just interject a second there. I've, I've heard that there is a shortage of workout equipment available because of this. I mean, that a lot a of people are – yeah, that people have ordered – people are ordering like crazy – and there's, there might not be enough of it. Or you may have to wait a long time on that front. So that, that was news to me this week. Uh, additionally, last point on this, the NFL hammered out an offseason program that believes maintains a competitive balance with all 32 teams. The union's executive committee and board voted unanimously to accept the terms of the offseason programs with workout bonus guidelines. Your thoughts on all this, Z? Not surprising. I'm glad that they lifted. For, as Yesterday when it was first reported, it was all 50 states had to release, and I'm glad it was just limited right. to states where there actually are NFL workout facilities. Um, you know, it, it's going to be a weird offseason, and we talked with Adrian Claiborne yesterday. I talked with him after the show again, and, you know, he's got a gym in his house, so he's, he's one of the fortunate ones, but some of the guys are, don't have that. And, and as you said, it's not easy to get equipment right now. Um, right. So you're going to have to be creative and figure out ways to, you know, put stuff in and, and get workouts in and do what you can to maintain your strength and maintain your fitness to the best of your ability under what are very difficult and adverse circumstances. Uh, the way that, you know, when you read that language, all the states, it says to me that the first chance we've got of, of this getting back together would be training camp. And it would be a training camp probably unlike any other, you know, hopefully by then they have the drive up tests. Players can get the quick test. If they're clean, they come in. If not, they go into a quarantine or go get medical treatment until they are without the virus. But I would imagine training camp will be closed to the public. Um, I, yeah. I imagine that it will be taking place. And, and, and look, everything that the NFL's done, even with this draft, has all been about complete equality and a level playing field. And it's no surprise to me that everybody will have the same standards by the same rules, et cetera. And like I said, I, I think training camp's your first chance. And hopefully by then we're in a better place, you know, globally and obviously domestically that you can you can get there and hopefully have it happen. 
I think you hit on something that's really important. It's not, um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, a vaccine in a year or however long that takes, which is an extended period of time. It's more the, the other thing that has to happen, though, which is almost as important is a treatment that there has to be a a a process treatment so that you know that if you test and you get this, you don't shut down a league. So that'll right. be that's the other part of this thing that that has to be discussed is there has to be a treatment in order to do it. Um, the NFL is not the most difficult to come back. College football is the most difficult to come back by far um, in terms of the sports that are the, the big money makers in our country. Uh, but the NFL, it's a tough spot. It's a lot of people who are involved. Um, and if you're going to try to do it in front of fans, that's a lot of people, too. So this is the first step in that. I think there's tremendous pressure um, that is being put on leagues to get back to work. I mean, I think that that people want it, that the uh, politically it's wanted. And so it's something that's going to be uh, really interesting to see. I, I tend to agree with you. It's hard for me to imagine anything before the last week of July, the first week of August, um, just because everyone's taking this on at different stages. And so, I mean, you think about how aggressive Mike DeWine has been here in Ohio, thankfully, which has saved a lot of lives, uh, but others haven't been. And so while we're leveling and hopefully going down in our state, there are other states that are going to be doing this for another month, going straight up for another month. So that's the thing that's going to be difficult is how do the how do the Tampa Bay Buccaneers situation, similar to the Cleveland Browns situation, which is similar to uh, the Seattle Seahawks or the L.A. Rams situation. They're all different because the country's experiences in, in different time periods. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's the other part of it that will be tricky, but at least some guidelines on this virtual uh, and get that, that sorted out a little bit. Coming up next, uh, a NFL superstar gets absolutely paid. We get into that as we go around the league, and another uni- new uniform dropped yesterday, the Indianapolis Colts, with some tweaks in terms of what they are doing. Mock draft of Palooza coming up at the bottom of the hour, yeah. off and running on a Tuesday. Cleveland Browns Daily, 850 ESPN Cleveland. You're listening to Cleveland Browns Daily on 850 ESPN Cleveland. Cooking is hard. Delivery is easy. So order takeout or delivery at buffalowildwings.com or through the new Buffalo Wild Wings app. Get award-winning wings and over 24 sauces and seasonings delivered fresh, hot, and straight to your house from the delivery partners at DoorJazz, Grubhub, and Uber Eats, subject to availability, of course. I look forward – I've got this on the schedule for tomorrow, so look forward yeah, to it. Yeah, manana, uh, as they friends. say. Yeah. That's going to be very good. Let's go around the league. Brought to you by Jack, and let's start with the Carolina Panthers and Christian McCaffrey signing a four-year contract extension, averaging $16 million per year, making him the highest-paid running back in the NFL history, according to ESPN. Including the two years left on McCaffrey's rookie deal and the option, the deal is expected to pay out around $75 million over six years. With What I'm seeing, Z, is roughly half of that is guaranteed Uh in terms of money that, that McCaffrey will absolutely see. Your thoughts on this or what, sir? It's a lot. It's a lot to pay a running back is what I think. And I know he's a, he's a tremendous weapon. He's a great player. And for this to work out, he's going to have to be incredibly durable. Um, and he is the centerpiece of everything the Carolina Panthers are trying to do. Uh, he will probably lead the league in touches uh, this year uh, and next year. So he, it's going to be – it end up being a pretty good deal if he stays healthy. It's just – it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to pay to one position that has a very high attrition rate. And, you know, we think of all the guys that have been the top guys. Le'Veon Bell was that guy for a three-year stretch, and then it just mm-hmm. – it's not there anymore. And, and 
you don't see a lot of running backs be able to have I mean, obviously, there's the Frank Gores, there's the Adrian Petersons, et cetera, but you don't see a lot of guys just be able to be a bell cow and that kind of a workhorse year after year uh, in the in the NFL. You don't see it. And guys who Why? have you know, pretty high this peaks, was a hall- they burn out. It was a hallmark of our youth. We talked about this a couple months ago. Like, it's a hallmark of our youth. Of If you grew up a Bears fan, Walter Payton was your running back for a decade plus. Emmett Smith was yeah. with the Cowboys a decade plus. He was good for 10 years. Barry Sanders was good for eight, eight to 10 years. Great. Um, and th- it wasn't just them. I mean, Marcus Allen played forever. Um, there, you know, I, I don't yep, understand a- how Marshall Falk played forever. LaDainian Tomlinson played a long time. Edger and James played a long time. Now guys can last three years. It just, I don't understand it. Well, I mean, first of all, you didn't have guys at, at, at least, maybe, and maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, Christian McCaffrey had 400 and 13 touches last year like that's right. an unbe- that's, a, that's a ridiculous number of hits to take on your body as a guy that's you know 511 200 pounds and now you could say he's good he doesn't take a lot of direct hits and all of that is is phenomenal and, and good for him but in a three-year career now in the nfl He's already touched the football. That means that's catches. Now he targets and routes. You know you can add you can add that up, but just carries and receptions. He already has nine hundred and twenty six in three years in the NFL. I ha- I believe uh, fully it has to do with the level of training that you know it's just like why does it, why can certain cars drive for two hundred thousand miles, but you know Ferraris can't because when you are that finely tuned, when you are that souped up and you're that close to the edge things break down and yeah. not only that the guys that are coming after you are all finely tuned close to the edge bigger stronger faster than they used to be in the past and i think you're just it's a different era i think it is just a different era guys that's why you know you hear people even talk about taking running backs out of college that had huge workloads and you get concerned about them and some guys burn out pretty quickly and that's a concern you know for people looking at jonathan taylor did he have? Did he did he touch the football too much in college? Is he taken already? Is there too much tread off of those tires? It is definitely a change from our youth, but I mean, it's one that I think we're pretty well documented on in the last few years. I mean, you guys say you have guys that thrive for a let's call it a five year period, and they're never the same again. It just is. I mean, even Jamal Charles, you can Lashawn Alexander, you go even in the more modern than that, Gurley, Le'Veon Bell. David Johnson, all those guys had runs as the peak back in the NFL, and it just doesn't last. It just no, doesn't. No, it doesn't. It's interesting because he's he is on no different of a, in fact, less from a total carry standpoint start to his career than Ladanian Tomlinson was. Carry, uh, yeah, for sure. But he's no, no, no. I mean, yeah. I'm talking combined. Uh, oh, Ladanian's third year in the league, he was 413 total touches. He was, which is what McCaffrey was at in year three as well. Yeah. Um, Ladania was 372 rushes in his second year in the league, 80 catches. That's outrageous. Um, so, I mean, he had 450 touches his second year in the league. How Ladanian big was Ladanian? And Ladanian was great, really, until 28, 29. Like, he had seven, eight. It was eight years of great. Um, yeah. You know, I've never stood next to Ladanian. He's listed at 5'10", 215. McCaffrey is similar. Yeah, 205, 210, something yeah. like that. Pretty similar from a size standpoint. Um it's interesting. I the the thing I would say on the on the McCaffrey thing, the amount of, of touches he gets coming out of the backfield and the way that they use him, his he's not taking he's not taking the head to head hits the way Gurley was in the wide zone scheme where Gurley was linebackers were meeting Gurley in the hole a lot. He's he's not 
taking a lot of that because of the spread that they play and the spread that I think they'll continue to play. The other thing I would say about him that's very interesting is he's only 23. That's fascinating to me. I had no idea he was that young. Um, yeah. I had no idea. I mean, he's two years younger than six, and yeah. he's already He'll turn twenty four this season. He just turned twenty three, right? No. Oh, he'll be. Unless he turns twenty four sure June June seventh. He'll turn twenty four. Okay, so he's he's twenty three. He'll be twenty four. You're right. All right. So he's twenty three, and he's played three years in the league. So he played his third year in the league at age twenty three. The other, so that's a factor. So he's younger. He's a lot younger than for, at this point in his career than most are. Even most of these guys are twenty four, twenty five by the time they get this contract. Um, he's getting it going into his to to the age where he turns twenty four. The other thing is, is if you're David Tepper, and in the last year you have lost. Cam Newton, by your own choice, and yep. you've lost Luke Keekley on his own choice, and you're trying to run a business, and you need a face of the franchise. Christian McCaffrey is the face of the franchise. So from that standpoint, from a jersey sales standpoint, from a putting him on poster standpoint, this is a home run. That I think it's so it minimizes, and I think his star power is more important to them even than I would argue even Zeke Elliott's is to the Cowboys. Because the Cowboys don't yeah. need to have Zeke Elliott to sell their brand. Their brand is their brand. The Carolina Panthers are a different circumstance. And if you don't have Cam and you have Keekley, you need McCaffrey. Yeah, there's the, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, you definitely need McCaffrey. It's, it's a lot of money to spend, that's all. I just think about, you know, is he a great player? Sure. But just you were talking about even in this year's draft, if you're a team picking in the second round, you know, you can get J.K. Dobbins, DeAndre Swift, you know, Hilaire from LSU, Jonathan Taylor. All I just think running back is a position that is always easier to reload. It just is. It's always easier yeah. to reload, and there's been zero proven direct correlation between having, quote-unquote, the best running back in the NFL and winning Super Bowls. Not in, in the fact, last decade. No. So, to me – happened in the previous if, one, yeah. If I'm franchise building, right, I would rather bring in somebody fresh and spend that money, you know, on bringing in a Yannick Ngakwe – which I, you know, would be reasonable to be able to do and add him to my stable because there aren't as many premier pass rushers. And that yeah. is a position where you can have more longevity and it's one that's more difficult to come by. It just is. So yeah, I, I, from a, I think from a, right my philosophy, most. from my philosophy, I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be an advocate of, of paying big money uh, to a running back on a set contract. And I think there's pretty darn good history in the last decade of it not actually ever being a good investment for the team yeah more more than the other ways McCaffrey's got a couple of things going for him that some of the others don't his dual threat nature his age um and just the style that they're going to play limiting the hits on him would lead you to believe but that but that's not something you're right in the last decade and I can't explain it I don't understand it I don't understand how how guys could play for a decade at a very high level 15 years ago I understand your your idea of of the Ferrari I think it's the best theory I've heard on it um, and it, it's as close as I can come to it. I could come up with anything better, but it is strange to me that, that you used to be able to play for a decade and play at a high level at the position, and now you just don't see it. And this is something we're going to have to deal with this with Nick Chubb going into his third year. He is, and, and you know, with Nick Chubb, you're not going to take the same number, number of total hits. Now he is a more physical style of a runner, um, but it, it's, again, it's one of those things that, you you look to reload that position. I I think I think that's a position you look to reload because yeah. the the value of what you get you it's it's like when you do buy a car. 
you're, you know it's a declining asset. And a running back on a second contract, no matter how awesome they are, is likely to be a declining asset. Now, what you would want to do, and what I think you look at, look at Baltimore, for example, okay? Yeah. Instead of, you know, trying to make a massive investment in the running back position, what do they do? They went and they brought in, they got Mark Ingram. And what are they paying Mark Ingram? You know? I don't know. And he was exactly what they needed. The Chiefs were able to get out of, you know, the best running team in the NFL is the Niners, and they were doing it with Tevin Coleman, Matt Breida, and Raheem Mostert. The, yeah. the Chiefs were doing it with Damian Williams and won a Super Bowl with Damian Williams. The Patriots have been doing it with a combination forever. It just it seems that your resources, which are scarce in the NFL, are better spent in other places. And There's no question. It, it stinks because it's such a glamorous position, and it is an awesome position, and we all remember the great running backs of our, of our youth for sure. Um, and there are still a ton of talented guys still become running backs, and that's why you get these guys every year into the league that are so talented. Um, I don't know. It's one of the things that it's – I'm thrilled that we have Nick Chubb. I'm thrilled that we have Nick Chubb. And I think yep. we need to enjoy Nick Chubb while he's here um, because I think when you know kind of just the overall framework of everything – that Nick Chubb will be able to be here for a long time if it's at the right price point. But I, I don't believe this group would ever break the bank and, and make somebody the highest paid running back in the NFL, no matter how good they are. I just don't see, I don't, I just don't see that happening. No, no, probably not. That's the way that it is. It's interesting. You go back through the last 20 Super Bowl champions, there's like maybe two instances where the best player on the offense was the running back. It just hasn't happened very often. Who we, we see, and that's even probably saying Marshawn Lynch was the best player on the Seahawks, right? Yeah, I would say Marshawn would be in that conversation. And then the other one that jumped out was in 2000, which was Jamal Lewis. Um, 2000? Ravens. 2001, Jamal Lewis was, the, was the, the other one that jumped out to me. For, in terms of the best player on the offense, it's, it's probably him. Um, now, Corey Dillon was pretty good on the Patriots in, a, in one of those, maybe 04. Yeah, but that, we're Bettis going back, like, that's oh, a I know, long that's what I'm saying. You've got to go a long in ways the back. The other thing I thought about this real quick, and I know we're up against it. The other thing I thought about this was um, – it made me think that Reggie Bush was born 10 years too early. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Reggie Bush. Because absolutely. If, yeah. If he would have came out in 2015 instead of 2005 or six, whenever it was, um, if he would have been 10 years later, he would have had the type of – I believe he would have had the type of career. Um, I don't know if he'd been as good as McCaffrey, but he'd been in the vicinity. Absolutely. And, look, he got a chance with – obviously with – with New Orleans to be in a similar thing, but some, a lot of these concepts weren't here yet. They a lot of the rules in terms of what you could do and touching the running backs out of the backfield yep. and protecting them were not there yet, and that's what people did. They tried to beat Reggie Bush up. Nowadays, think about what Alvin Kamara is doing. You, you mean tell yeah. me that, and who's incredibly talented, that Reggie Bush wasn't as talented as Alvin Kamara? Oh, no, I, that's I, what I mean. I, that's the first thing I thought better. when I saw the deal. I thought, geez, if, if he's born 10 years later, in this world where we're open to moving running backs around, his career is entirely different. It's entirely yep. different because he had a lot of the skill set that, that McCaffrey certainly has. Jeff George's um, career would be different if he was in this NFL. Are you kidding me? The oh, guy be in the guy be wearing a gold well, here jacket we are right a now. Substantive comment commentary about running backs. So we got to bring up Jeff George. Guy be in the he'd be wearing a he's gold in the jacket. Perfect historical perspective, by the way. Let's just ask Deke. What would Deke say? That's all you need to know. Irrelevant That's all in this you case. Sad. About what Deke would say about Jeff George. Yeah. Um, coming up next, trying to find the next Jeff George, trying to find the next Christian McCaffrey. It can happen in the draft. Mock draft a palooza, a bunch of them out today, including Mel Kaipa Jr. with a two-rounder. Uh, we get to that coming up next. CBD 850 ESPN Cleveland. 
You're listening to Cleveland Browns Daily on 850 ESPN Cleveland. If you're injured at work, call the workers' compensation lawyers at 1-800-ELK-OHIO for a free case review. Elk and Elk is a proud partner of your Cleveland Browns. Browns. Mock draft of Palooza. Uh, we talked about Dane Brugler's a little bit yesterday with his seven-round mock draft out. The godfather of the draft, Mel Kuyper, dropping a two-rounder uh, today as well. Probably the biggest headline uh, from that was the idea of the uh, Miami Dolphins going Justin Herbert instead of Tua Tungavailoa. So Herbert going five to Miami and then uh, Tua going six um, to the to the Chargers. And that would go against the would be opposite of everything you heard at the combine. A lot can change in a month, but that would be the exact opposite of that for us. He has us and it'd be a, it'd be a draft I'd sign up for right now. Joe Thomas would sign up for it too. Mackay Becton 10 and then uh, at 41, it is Grant Delpit. The Call. safety out of LSU, which we can sign up for that draft tomorrow. I am the more that, and now that I've like read more and started, I've even watched a little bit more. Give me, give me Grant Delpit, please. That is what it's that Randy is. Williams all over, all over again. And I think he's going to be better. I think, I think he's going to be better. I, I real, I think Grant Delpit is going to be a perennial Pro Bowler. I, I could be wrong, and not that I, I have any type of history as a, 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 a safety talent evaluator, but. I think Grant Delpit's a stud. I think he's going to be a star. He is stud. And, and yeah, I he's, want him. A, he's an incredible athlete, incredible skill set. Uh, I do think that there are fair criticisms of the way he played last year. I think he's um, banged up. Well, yeah, but you, you have to – I think there is question – you know, there's some effort issues as well, um, and he had a tendency sometimes to disappear a little bit, but the talent is, is insane. And, and if, if you put him – uh, with this defense and allow for him to grow, uh, you you are getting a guy who's a top ten talent in the second round. It would feel a lot like getting greedy last year. Feel yep. a lot like getting Mac Wilson uh, last year as well, where just a, a guy who had a supreme talent falls in your lap. Um, it is hard for me to you know the the tackles. The it's amazing the the difference that opinion people have on the four of them, right? I mean, yep. like. Joe had Werfs four. Becton was runaway number one. Um, we've seen it the other way, where Becton's four and Werfs is one. Uh, we had we've we've had people on who said they like Andrew Thomas the best, that he's the most natural. Yep. Um, so it's it's hard. I'm not an offensive line evaluator, so for me to sit here and argue that if you if you take Makai Becton over Jedrick Wills is ridiculous. I, I have no idea. I'm not going to no. sit up here and do that. It's not what I'm doing. Um, but but again, it's an, it is a safety at ten. Let me tell you this. I'm sorry, a, a, a tackle attempt. Both the Mel Kuyper and the Dane Brugler mocks in the first couple of rounds make me very excited for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, you get, you're get you going to get one of the tackles at 10 that you want. Number two, both the two safeties that I've, I, that I've identified and from talking to people that seem like the best fits for the Browns, Grant Delpit as well as Jeremy Chin from Southern Illinois, Mm-hmm. both on the board at 41. We'll leave it to these guys to decide who actually is the better one. I'm I'm all in, on board with AB and his screw and his team figuring that out. But to have those options, I, I love that. And then, you know, if you come out of there, that seems to me to be the ideal scenario. And you go into Danes. Did you see what he did in the third and fourth rounds? I, I, I don't recall it off the top of my head. So I looked at it yesterday. In the third round, you get a good linebacker, Jordan Brooks, out of Texas Tech. 
which I, I like a ton. Then later in the third, you get a pass rusher, an edge rusher, uh, Travis Gibson from Tulsa. And then in the fourth round, Donovan Peoples-Jones from Michigan. I love that. Yeah, I like pick. him. I love that. I think he's got talent. I think he, yep. it, he falls because of the quality of this class. And then you're able to get Donovan Peoples-Jones there. And you've caught, what are the things that we said were the biggest issues for this team? Tackle, safety, linebacker, edge rusher of the future. You nail all of those. Then you add in a good receiver for the future as well. Um, and, and you feel, I think, pretty pretty good about what you're doing here. I, I, yeah, I like Donovan the way that shakes Jones, out. Yeah, what Donovan Peoples-Jones would be for I mean, those of us who saw him a lot in the Big Ten, it'd be something we don't have. He's Size. a big kid. Yep, he's a big kid on the edge who can go up and make plays, um, and somebody who just was just they just could never get it going offensively the way that you would want. I, I, I think the pattern is is what you pay attention to as as a Browns fan. Is it is it tackle safety? linebacker, receiver, end in some order, those are going to be the positions of need as, as you – and there are positions of need. Those are positions that need to be filled and need to be addressed. Um, and so the order that those things go will be interesting. Now, there was one – there's another one from Jenny Vrentis, um, who is with Sports Illustrated that was – and I believe she's MMQB as well – that had us taking Derek Brown, the defensive tackle out of Auburn, uh, at number 10, which would be such a shocking play at that position – where we're pretty loaded, and and I don't even know if you'd have to address it this draft. Yeah, so that one, and by the way, Becton's on the board when she has right. the selection of Brown. I don't see it. I just do not see the Browns taking a defensive tackle in the first round, in the second round, and we've seen some of that. Dane, seven-round mock, not a defensive tackle selected. I think that's more likely yeah. of an outcome than it is one being taken in the first or the second round. I just, I don't, I just don't see that and maybe he's that high up on your board that you, he's the best player available and you've got to do it but you've already got Sheldon you've got Larry and you've got Billings you know it just would be a lot in a defensive tackle room when you know at least in theory right that in a lot of your passing situations have Claiborne Miles Vernon and one of those defensive tackles on the right. field together it yeah. just I, I don't get I don't that I, I don't understand it I think you know I don't know what their evaluation is of Becton. If maybe they think that he's too big, if they think that you know he can't necessarily you know play in this wide zone scheme. Obviously, Joe thought he that he can. Yeah. Evaluations are different, though. That's why we said different teams are going to have all four of these guys as the number one tackles on their board. But I just don't see that scenario where a defensive tackle is taken when you know safety, you know linebacker, you know edge rusher you could say even third tight end you could say third wide receiver are all much more important to you and even have an opportunity yeah. to contribute to you more this year than a defensive tackle no and, question and, and no question i'll say I this go ahead just one last point the the picks before sashi brown and his group took over that year they took danny shelton I want to say we picked right around there. Maybe it was 11, 10, 11, 12, something. Was, it was the year you had two ones. You got Danny Shelton and Cam Irving. And I know that the philosophy of the group that followed was that you would never – now, Derek Brown, uh, Brown is, a, is more of a pass rusher, obviously, than Shelton was. Yeah. But unless they are a pass rusher primarily, you would never take a defensive tackle that early. No. So it's got to be no. a special, you know, a Gerald McCoy type, an Aaron Donald type. It's got to be a pass rusher. And Brown is a game wrecker, he but it's that, not like yeah. he was a guy that was a double-digit sack guy going around and, and, you know, dominating college football like that. 
No, no. I, I would be again. I would be surprised by that. I, I would think that the only, I would think the only position player that you would take at ten, other than a tackle, is Isaiah Simmons, and it's because of the versatility that he provides. So, folks, think about it this way: if you play Isaiah T- Simmons at, let's say, Will linebacker. What he allows you to do as you go from three linebackers to two and down to one is to stay on the field the whole time and disguise what defense you're in consistently to quarterbacks because you can blitz him and you can put him on a slot receiver and you can do it all from him out of essentially a linebacker position. I'm saying in air quotes if you're watching on the stream, a linebacker position, but basically he's just a defender. But you can yep. play him at linebacker from a quarterback's perspective. He looks – they don't know what defense you're in with this kid on the field. They don't know if you're in nickel, yep. you're in dime. They don't know if you're in, in standard. So that that's why he has the value that he has because he is uh, so unique and such a game wrecker that you can do so many things with him because of such an athletic freak. He is about the only player that I could see at 10 that you'd have to go, okay, we really need a tackle, but this is too much. We have a chance to get this kid. This changes the way we play defense. It's either him or if Akuda's somehow there. I mean, and then you have to decide, yeah. okay, do we just – But that's it. That's it. To me, that's yeah. it. I don't know if that's the opinion yeah. of those who make the decisions, but to me, you're right. I couldn't agree more. That would be it. I really think that they have, you know, we're going to be in good a good spot there at 10. Now, the one scenario we haven't considered is what if Simmons, Akuda, what if Tua doesn't go in the top 10? What if – you know, you have yeah. Chase Young, Simmons, Akuda, all four tackles go. Yep. As well as Herbert and and Burrow. That would be nine picks, right? Yeah. Four tackles, the three studs, the two quarterbacks, nine. Then what yeah. do you do at ten? And and then I think that's when you you're trying to move down and, and yeah. see what and see what you can get at that point. Yeah. Try to pick up an extra two or something like that to move back down for the team that is covetous of Derek Brown or the team that's covetous of who they consider to be the top receiver in this loaded draft class. Or a, t- a team that's covets Tua and Tua. somehow he's available. Sure, um, of course. Now I don't think there's just knowing a little bit about the market. I don't see any scenario where if he's on the table, Tua gets past nine in the Jaguars. There's just, I just don't think there's any way that they would not take him at number nine. Um, in terms of what he would mean to that franchise, so I don't know. If, I don't know that that would happen. Um, but if that did, that would be a fascinating spot. And then you have to say, all right, who are your trade partners? Who's out there for trade yep. that wants to come up and get to it? Is that where New England comes into play? I was going to say Belichick. Yep. And then you get Austin the team, Jackson right, right there, twenty-three. Yeah. Yeah, or Ezra Cleveland, whoever you want. Right. Um, because there, the other thing is, as you go down beyond that, there aren't that many. There really aren't that many teams that covet quarterbacks behind you. New England's the only one that jumps out to me that, right. that clearly would covet it. Yeah, I, I would say New England would be certainly one of them. You would have to think that, you know, you wonder what how people have evaluated this, though, right? And and in the in this the case that let's say that Tua doesn't go in the top ten, is it because the Chargers took Herbert and the Dolphins didn't? Or is it because mm-hmm. the Dolphins took Herbert and then the Chargers did not? Because if it's still the Dolphins, that's a team that could move up from 18 and say, okay, look, we got our left tackle of the future or we got one of these studs and we still get Tua at 10. They could be a team that would maybe consider moving right. up. I'll give you another one that's a wild card. It's a little bit out of the blue. But what if the yep. New Orleans Saints love them? 
Drew Brees is not being yeah. around forever, and I'm I don't buy Taysom Hill as their franchise quarterback of the future. The guy's already in his thirties yeah. and is not your traditional quarterback. Yeah, they would do they could do a situation there where 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 Brees would play this year, this would be his last year, or he could play two years, and two it could be in the situation Aaron Rodgers was, and they could say, Hey, just get healthy, learn from one of the greatest of all time. You're still gonna have this job by the time you're twenty four. There's plenty of time. The Raiders, I mean, it's worth you got to mention them. John Gruden going to Vegas gets Tua. You know he's not sold on Carr. No, yeah, Tua's only twenty-two. So I mean, he he just turned twenty-two. In fact, so he would if he just at the beginning of March. So like, if you were a team that had a red shirt situation, like what you just painted with the Saints, that's one that would make sense with him, where he could come and he could sit for two years behind Breeze, uh, go in if Breeze gets hurt, they could develop him. Peyton could develop him, and it could lead to a second renaissance uh, for Peyton. So the Saints are an interesting one. They certainly yeah. are. Um, in terms of that package. And then, obviously, New England's the first one that I thought of when you when you think about those things. Um, going to be fascinating. We're, we're inching closer nine days uh, from the NFL draft, first round of the NFL draft. Coming up next, uh, Chris Fowler with a very interesting comments on what could happen in college football. We will get into that coming up next. CBD 850 ESPN Cleveland. <laughs> You're listening to Cleveland Browns Daily on 850 ESPN Cleveland. All right, welcome back into Cleveland Browns Daily here on a Tuesday edition of the program. College football, very, very complicated. There are a lot, there are a lot of hurdles here in terms of the college football returning, and it could affect the way the NFL handles its offseason next year. One thing I will tell you about the guy you're about to hear from, Chris Fowler, he is not someone who says anything without some substance behind it. He doesn't say things for headlines. He say th- says things that he hears. And what you're about to hear from his Instagram is three possibilities for what could happen in college football. Let's have a listen. College football season is scheduled to begin 20 Saturdays from today. Week zero, August 29th, Dublin, Ireland, and elsewhere. And the question everybody is asking and pondering is, will we have a college football season that unfolds normally? I say that's impossible. What is normal even going to mean in society, in sports? I think that normalcy might take a long time and there might just be a new normal in a lot of different areas, including sports. But good news is I am convinced there will be a college football season in the academic year of 2021 at some point. What might that look like? When might it start? That is the topic of this video. And I would call this informed speculation. It's just speculation, but I've had conversations with people who are in the planning stages. They're not the decision makers, but they're planning the various scenarios and the what ifs, and they're thinking about a few different scenarios. The first scenario is the season begins on time and isn't altered much. Time is running out though, unless you feel like four to six weeks is a whole lot of time, because I'm told that by the end of May, there has to be clarity. And if you're going to have college campuses open, which you have to have if you're gonna bring the players back, That's about the deadline to get things going on time. And there are various conference commissioners in the Power Five Conference, athletic directors on the phone constantly. They have to plan for the what if of a season on time. If it gets pushed back by the deciders, and college football is way more complicated than any pro sport. 
the NFL is getting heavy political pressure to begin on time. And the networks want to see that too. But college football, if you think about it, so many different layers, municipalities and states will decide when to open the valve and let people get back together again. Not so much the political side show in Washington, but the local municipalities and states, that's what turned things off. That's what's going to turn things back on, I'm told. You got chancellors and presidents who'll make the decision for their schools, not the commissioners, athletic directors. So, so many people are involved. Is it realistic to think that this country is going to be on the same page, a level playing field by July and August? Are things going to be at the same stage? You're going to feel the same in California as they do in Michigan or Ohio, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, Florida, Texas, all these places. It seems unlikely given the fact that the virus is cresting and the peak is at different places at different times. We're suddenly going to be back to normal to get the crowds back in stadiums everywhere by late August, early September. I mean, maybe it'll happen. We hope it'll happen. But hope without facts and the truth is not a strategy. That's what got us in large part into this mess in the first place. So hope isn't going to do it. And the people who are going to make these decisions will be guided by the epidemiologists, the medical experts, the biotech people who can tell them when and how testing is going to be accelerated and improved and whether herd immunity is possible. So scenario one, that's what we hope for, but it doesn't feel super realistic to me and a lot of others who are pondering this. Scenario two, the season starts late and maybe gets shortened a bit. So maybe you get going in November and you go through January in some way. You have to reshuffle the playoff. To me, that sounds problematic. People are very worried about a second wave of this virus coming back when the temperatures up north turn cold in November. You want to start a season and have to shut it down? To me, that would be disastrous. There's a third scenario that's gaining momentum and that on the surface might sound preposterous, but I think a lot of reasonable people feel like it might be the most prudent course of action and that's football in the spring, beginning at some point in February into March, April, May. Maybe you have the postseason in June. That would have to be reshuffled a bit. It would be bizarre. It would wreak havoc on some other sports in that time of year. But to avoid the financial disaster of having no football season in the academic year, I think it might be a fallback position. All right, a couple of things on this. That was Chris Fowler, ESPN's Chris Fowler, the voice of, of college football. Number one, uh, one thing that I can tell you um, absolutely about the college football plan is they will play college football. They're going to play it. So they, they're not going to skip a year. So if they yep. do Fowler's plan, which I know is being discussed, of playing in the spring next year, starting in February and going through end of June, if they do that, then what they will be asking of those athletes is to turn around and play – Two months later, go to camp, which is a big, big ask, obviously, uh, to do that, to play a season that goes into June and then yeah. turn around and play turn two around. months later. It's an, it's an incredible ask uh, for student-athletes. You talk to guys who played, and they said they will tell you that they started to feel okay with their bodies in May of the next year, and you would miss out on the training and the body. These are 18-, 19-year-old kids in many instances, yes. so you'd miss out on a lot of the bodybuilding and, and the stuff that normally happens in an offseason. You would miss that almost entirely. The second thing I would say is college football really doesn't want to come back until they can come back with fans. Yep. That's really important to them, more so than I think even the NFL or anything else. And that's because college football makes a lot of money on TV, a ton of money, not as much as the NFL, but a ton. 
but the gate at the games buoys up the rest of the non-revenue sports. And so you already saw this today at the University of Cincinnati, who is getting rid of men's soccer. It's gone away. This, there will, that casualty, the men's non-revenue sports, soccer, golf, lacrosse, baseball, uh, wrestling, uh, those are going to go away at most places. Uh, Cincinnati is not a program that is any sort of financial danger of going away, and they got rid of it. So that tells you a lot of others will as well. Yeah, and it's an unfortunate thing. And as you you know, obviously, and as you alluded to, there's one revenue maker right in college that covers the bills for all the other sports and all the other yeah. programs and everything that gets that to happen and keeps the lights on for those things. And yeah, without that, you're going to lose a lot of some of this ancillary programming, at least for the time being. I would imagine a lot of these things will be resumed um, when everything gets back to normal. But yeah, and that's terrible. And you feel for these kids. I mean, I know I have friends whose kids are graduating from college this year. They're not going to get to have graduations. They haven't been yeah. to school. You know, it's it's really I feel very badly for a lot of the young people. I feel bad for everybody. Obviously, sure. older people are, are dying. Young people. I mean, we're dealing with it's just it's thrown a real wrench into our way of life. And, and the fallout is is vast. You know, it, yeah. it's nothing is nothing can escape it truly you know nobody is completely immune from this um in, in every way shape and form so yeah it, it they've got to find a way to get it because it's so critical to the university's viability have to have especially that. with these yeah. big schools you've got to have it you've yeah. got to you have, have it you got to have students in school because <laughs> so that's the other part is until students are in school you can't have student athletes practicing right uh, so that that's the other thing in this. Now, for the NFL's perspective, I know we're up against Jeff Hobbs. Come I'll just make one quick point. This would then force the combine to move into end of June, early July. It would then force the draft to move into July. It would be a circumstance where you could draft a player in the middle of next July if you played college football next spring, draft him in the middle of July, and they report to camp, provided we're back to normal by then, God willing, uh, and they report to camp two weeks later. So think about the, how compressed – that will put NFL teams and their rookies. By the way, one of them is going to be Trevor Lawrence, who's one of the most sought-after quarterbacks to come out and since luck. Um, and so that's going to happen in a, in that type of compressed time frame, which is going to be pretty wild, uh, it, to say the least. Yeah, it is going to be wild. And you wonder, this could be – it would cause, I would think, two consecutive years where rookies are going to have a tougher time having an early impact. Absolutely. Because I think rookies this year are going to have a difficult time. You know, because they're not going to get – Yes, they're going to be able to get their mental reps. They're not going to get any of their physical reps. You know, and if you're the Browns, and let's say, you know, our next guest coming up, Jeff Hobson, we'll talk to him. But if you play the Bengals week one, if that's somehow the schedule falls, which is certainly a possibility, is Joe Burrow going to be ready to be their quarterback week one? Do you feel do you get some type of an advantage from that? You know, and, and yeah, there's going to be a lot of that, I think, a lot of that in terms of how this actually truly shakes down and impacts uh, certain positions and, and definitely rookies and certain teams that were counting on big contributions from their early picks, as they should. Absolutely. Could be us at left tackle, frankly. Right. Uh, Jeff Hobson of Bengals.com going to join us next with as we start our look around the division. That is coming up next. You'll listen to Cleveland Browns Daily on 850 ESPN Cleveland. You're listening to Cleveland Browns Daily on 850 ESPN Cleveland. Episode 15 of the BPA is out today on the Browns YouTube channel, youtube.com slash brown, or wherever you get your podcast. 
The Ibs boys and Dr. Z bring you their top five quarterbacks, corners, and safeties in this year's draft. We're going to go around the AFC North in uh, advance of next week's NFL draft, and they've been on the clock for quite a while. We're going to visit with our good buddy Jeff Hobson, Bengals.com senior writer, joining us. Jeff, uh, we're nine days away. It has been assumed that it has been Joe Burrow for the Bengals from Jump Street. Is there anything out there that leads you to believe that that won't be the way that it shakes out next week? Unless the Dolphins throw in the 72 Dolphins, I guess, uh, maybe. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I just believe, you know, I'm just uh, just like you guys. Uh, I'm reading all this stuff, and, uh, you know, uh, I, before, uh, back in February, I, I drove up to Athens uh, to do a story on uh, the town and uh, what Burroughs meant to it. And, uh, you know, it seems, it seems like it's a, it would be a great fit, obviously. It's always nice to have the, the, the top pick and be able to get the guy you want. You don't have to worry about anything else. I have a question for you. Something we were talking about in the segment before is, you know, with the craziness of this offseason, with the fact that there might not be an offseason, that maybe training camps the earliest teams could actually get back together, that uh, do you think that would hinder Burrow's ability, you know, week one to come right out or any rookies really this year to kind of hit the ground running and have that normal participation early in the season that you would want that comes with a full off season of a rookie minicamp and OTAs and minicamps and all of that that probably won't exist this year other than mentally? I would suggest that the Bengals take a look at their twenty uh, at the 2011 tape of the lockout. Uh, when Carson Palmer was uh, holding out, they drafted a they drafted a wide receiver in the first round and a and a quarterback in the second round, and they never saw each other or never threw a ball to each other until, you know, the first day of training camp because of the lockout. They ended up, uh, Andy Dalton and A.J. Green ended up going 9-7. and seven. Their first game was they were, uh, they were in tune enough that they went up to Cleveland and won a game nobody thought they were going to win, and they went on to you know, win nine games. So yeah. uh, it's happened in their history. It, it certainly has, Jeff, and I, I want to circle back to, to Burrow for a second and what that it's been like in Cincinnati uh, with the ability to, to draft this kid, who the story is, I mean, if you walked into a Hollywood script, a Hollywood producer's office, they'd say, get that guy out of here. This isn't going to happen. No one's going to believe it. If you think about what, what happened with that kid's story and, and the fact that you tie into where he's from, what you've been there, and you know what he means uh, to, to that area. What has the excitement been in town uh, for having him? I know Jeff Ruby, name, his name and stakes after him, so that's always seemed to be a win. Uh, my guess is quite a bit, but, but this is an opportunity to take a very special story along with a very special player. Yeah, I think uh, I think he'd carry Hamilton County, no no question about it, um, and probably could win anything statewide. I would imagine, <laughs> um, not to mention Louisiana too. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, he's a popular he's a popular choice here. Uh, I was talking to Boomer Sison uh, the other day, and he said it would be corporate suicide if he didn't uh, if if the Bengals didn't yeah. take him. And uh, so these guys, the Bengals, you know, I mean, Mike Brown's a uh, a smart guy. He's he's been around this thing a long time. Uh, he's the guy that brought the Bengals to Cincinnati and uh, advised his father to do that. And he knows what makes this crowd tick and what they want. And uh, like Boomer said, they've always had a string of quarterbacks here that have been productive. And uh, most most of the times, uh, you know, you can take a, there was a bad stretch there with Achilles Smith and David Klingler. But beyond that, they've had a guy that has always played well and carried them. And, uh, Mike Brown never go. Uh, 
if he doesn't, if he's not happy with his quarterback, he's uh, things are not good. So uh, I would think that uh, Mike has uh, Mike's got a guy that he knows not only resonates with him, but also uh, the town too. Jeff, speaking of Mike Brown, typically not a big player in free agency. That was not the case this year. D- DJ Reader comes in. Von Bell, you remake the second year with Von Bell, Trey Waynes, and Mackenzie Alexander. Uh, Josh Bynes comes in from Baltimore. Xavier Suofilo. This was a big, active offseason for the Bengals. What, what do you make of that? Because it is a departure from, from their free offseason activities of the past. It's a departure of the last decade because they have lived off it. They drafted very well in 2009, 10, 11, 12, and 13. And then they have hit a dry patch. But before that, and in the, fir- in the first years of the Barbara Lewis era, they were active in free agency. I mean, you know, I can, you know, John Thornton, uh, Tory James. I mean, so they have done it, but they haven't done it recently. Uh, but they were forced to this year because they go 2-14. and 14, So clearly that's telling you something. The drafts dried up a little bit. And if the drafts don't go... You got to get it somewhere else, and I think they decided that they had to do that. And I, uh, it doesn't surprise me that Mike did it because I've seen him do it. I mean, I've seen him spend money in free agency. What surprised me is he did it in this off season, which is probably the most uncertain economic outlook of his lifetime. And he was born in the depression. That might have been the surprising thing. You know the other thing that it would I, I, go ahead. Okay, one more point on that. No, I was just going to say. No, I was just going to say. But I think you know. I, you know, I just don't. You know, I think it, he has done it in the past. But I think I. You know, but he went out and did it. You got to tip his hat to him uh, because who knows when they're going to play. Yeah, no, no question. I, I'll tell you, Jeff. I I love Burrow obviously in, in terms of what he can be. I was really impressed with Zach Taylor. Got a chance to hear him talk uh, at the combine and just the way that he carried his business. And um, it, it was a young guy upon hiring, and and you understand uh, that that you're trying to project a little bit of, in terms of what somebody can be. Uh, but I was impressed with the way he carries himself, and I, I think the marriage of him and Joe. Uh, ought to be a good one. Are you hearing anything? I know that they've spoken to Joe, I think, about as much as the NFL would allow. Are you hearing if there's a chemistry between the two of them? I'd be surprised if they don't have the first week of training camp installed by now, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, who, who knows? You know, I would imagine. I mean, I have no idea what their chemistry is, but I see the same thing uh, that you see. It's hard not to get along with Zach. Uh, he's an engaging guy. He's enthusiastic. He's bright. That's that's. Uh, a major reason they hired him is because of what you saw at the Combine. And yeah. they wanted to go. They gambled with a young guy, but they felt like he was a young, bright guy on the way up. And they really went to the DNA of the franchise, a young offensive mind. That's really how this, you know, Paul Brown, Paul Brown brought in Bill Walsh. Uh, he brought, you know, Bill, uh, uh, Sam Weiss was, uh, was a backup quarterback on Paul Brown's first team. So, you know, they Bruce Coslett. They you know they who was a player on Paul on uh, some of Paul Brown's teams. I mean, they've they've raised offensive guys, bright, innovative offensive guys. They feel like Zach is in the same, you know, is in the same category, and uh, they feel like that uh, they've uh, you know they got a guy uh, Zach who has a, a, a clear vision of what where the game is going offensively, and now he's got the 21st century uh, quarterback, you know, this guy that's uh, completing damn near 80% of his passes. So X's and O's wise, it seems to be a hell of a marriage. And uh, 
just to keep it going on the way to Athens is Chillicothe, Ohio, which is the hometown of the great great cook who um, he he was only healthy for one year, but the year he won it, he won the AFL passing title in 1964. Hurt his shoulder, never never played again. I think he threw three passes, but Bill Walsh always said, uh, and I think Mike believes this too, if Ray Cook hadn't got hurt, the Bengals would have been the team of the 70s. So they've had this history of, uh, you know, of offensive minds and great quarterbacks. And Ken Anderson should be in the Hall of Fame. He's the best quarterback not in the Hall. Jeff, we may we know we've talked a little bit about Burrow, but listen, when you have the first pick in the draft, as the Browns know, you have the first pick in the second round. You have the first pick in the third round. Yeah. What directions, what what positions do you expect this team to target with some of those early picks, given that they'll have three of the first 65? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it's interesting because uh, now, uh, and this is the first time they've had the first pick in the new era here, what it's been, it's been since 2010, the draft's been over three days, I think. So you've got all day to sit around Friday, too. Uh, you know, and so I'd be, I'd be kind of surprised if they didn't trade back because they've done that in the last three second rounds. But, of course, they're going to get a shot at a very good player. I'm sure they'll get a shot at a player that they had rated in the first round. So it'll be hard to pass that player by. I thought, you know, before free agency, I thought this thing has got to be, I don't care what 33 is, it's got to be a defensive player. In fact, after the first pick, you figure everything had to be a defensive player after that, but not now, which is the beauty of free agency because it opened up their draft board. You know, they paid, you know, they're going to have five opening, they basically signed five opening day starters on defense and they hit it at every level. They, you know, they made Reader the highest paid nose tackle. Josh Bynes is the reason the Ravens began stopping run again when they brought him off the couch. In Von Bell, they get a, in Von Bell and, uh, and Trey Waynes and Mackenzie Alexander to get three defensive backs who what they do is they tackle, you know, particularly Bell. So yep. I think, you know, I think they can sit back there. I think if a tackle gets, you know, I think, I think if an offensive player gets through that they like, they won't blink and they'll take them. But at some point in this draft, they're going to have to get a linebacker, and uh, they'd like to get a couple more defensive linemen probably, and they need, you know, they're always looking for an offensive tackle too. So, you know, there's right. spots to be – spots to be had jeff always a pleasure talking to you my friend uh gonna look forward to the draft next week and look forward to seeing you down the line appreciate your time today always good talking to you guys thanks very much always a lot of fun to talk to our good buddy jeff hobson down in cincinnati at bangles.com coming up next uh one of the guys in the second round garnering a lot of buzz uh with a positive test we will get to that coming up next you're listening to cbd on 850 espn cleveland you're listening to Cleveland Browns Daily on 850 ESPN Cleveland. Cooking is hard, delivery is easy. So order takeout or delivery at buffalowildwings.com through the new Buffalo Wild Wings app. Get award-winning wings over 24 sauces and seasons delivered hot, fresh, straight to your house or from their delivery partners at DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats, subject to availability. Of course, I will have mine tomorrow. This is from Adam Schefter just in the last couple of minutes. I'm very much looking forward to that. Zach Bond, third-rated linebacker on Mel Kuyper Jr.'s board, notified all 30 teams that he tested positive for a diluted sample at the Combine, and he blamed it on drinking too much water for weight-related weigh-in purposes per league sources. 
So there you go, Z, in the lead up to this draft. Yeah, and you, you wonder if that's going to end up impacting him. You wonder if that's going to impact his draft status, where he is going to be in, in terms of where he'll fall in this draft, and, and maybe does it push him? He's a guy who was you know, kind of an early second round. Does that push him into the third round, or do teams not care? The thing, the question it raises for me is, so clearly he was trying to pack water weight on for his weigh-in. If, if what he yep. says is to be believed – which means he feels that he was, you know, undersized and didn't want to be undersized because he was an edge rusher in college. Now, show was Joe Schobert, also at Wisconsin. Could he transition to an off-ball linebacker? Possibly. Uh, if that's the case, then maybe he becomes a fit for the Browns. But, you know, this is that's not one of the things that you want to have happen at, at this point um, because there isn't enough information and it's not normal where you could get a guy in here and ha take a test. And a lot of teams look at failing a drug test, which a diluted sample is considered by most a, a failed test. They look at that as failing an intelligence test. And, you know, yeah. that's not ideal, especially in this this time where there is so much uncertainty around all of this uh, as a prospect. And you have to have a feeling that's probably going to cost him to fall a little bit on draft day and maybe he ends up being a steal for somebody as a result. Yeah, I I think you know he's a potential guy who'd be who could who'd be a. I don't know that that that's where you want to go at edge rush guy, which is basically what he is. I don't know if you want to go that way at forty one, but if somebody of his talent dropped to you at forty one, I mean, I talked to guys at Ohio State about him and said that he was the best player that they played against at Ohio State. Okay, last year in the Big Ten, he was number one. So that gives you a little bit of an idea. They know a little bit about identifying talent. It gives you a little bit of an idea about what they think of him. And if he sure. were to all of a sudden fall because of this at 41, boy, he would be intriguing. He'd be tough to pass up, the skill set. It would be. The question is, what? so you, again, you know much more about this than I. What does he project as in the NFL to you? What position is he is he going to transit play a, in the National Football League? Well, he's he's rushed the passer, so he's a he's a four he's a three four outside linebacker, um, or a he's really athletic though. Um, yeah, I mean in terms of like a he's not a he wouldn't be a traditional four three defensive end. Um, I he's he's dang good. I I think he's I, he'd probably fit best. He's an outside linebacker is what he is who gets after the quarterback. That's so here's what, he what here's what Brugler said about has to say about him. Two year starter at Wisconsin, outside linebacker for Jim Leonard in their three four base game, playing mostly the field side, switching between a rusher and a dropper. Uh, he will be an off despite his sack production. He will be an off ball linebacker in the NFL, and the defensive play callers will need to cre be creative how they allow him to rush. Fantastic space athlete, natural burst, loose hips to be deployed across the formation, handling open field responsibility. Constantly affects the game with his active play style and effort, but he rushes and covers more on instinct and technical know how right now uh, his evaluation requires some projection because he won't be a full-time rusher in the NFL but displays the fluid athleticism smarts and motor to line up as a stack linebacker and nickel pass rusher projecting as a top 40 prospect he's so good I, yeah obviously he's clearly quite good and and it would be interesting to see how they viewed his skill set and, and what it would mean uh, for the Browns if, if that were somebody that you know fell to the early third round and the Browns wanted to, to consider taking him there yeah, yeah, interesting, and it, it's. Uh, I I think I like your line about an intelligence test. It's that as much as anything else, uh, when when it comes down to that um, at the combine. Like you all know, you're going to get tested. You know what the deal is on that thing, and have the it's, smarts to sort it out. What's interesting to me about it is he's listed as six two two thirty eight, um, and if it, it, maybe he was wanting to be more of a a pass rusher, 
uh, in the NFL and wanted to show a little bit more bulk. But if he was going to be an off-the-ball guy, I mean, you look at the comps, the top-off-the-ball linebackers, Kenneth Murray, 6'2", 240. Uh, Patrick Queen, 6'2", 230. I mean, he was kind of right there. Simmons is 6'3", 238. So I wonder what, if, if, if again, we're believing what he want us, wants us to believe, which is that he was trying to put on water weight for his way. And the question I would have is why? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's it's a good point. That's that's a good point out of you. What would be the point in 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 that? Uh to in, in adding the weight to that. He's a good player though. Um and it's, it's he just strikes me as somebody I could just see him ending up in Baltimore and Pittsburgh and being a problem. I don't yeah. know why. I just feel like I could see him in either of those places being something you'd have to be able sure, to deal with. Course. Maybe that's just because of TJ Waters. I don't know what it is, but like you just see guys who make plays seem to end up there and then cause you problems going forward, certainly. Um all right, lots to get to. We still have to do – we're going to do our special teams evaluation as we take a look uh, at the special team. We'll do a positional deep dive on the special team. Z, what do you got for me? You got something? Well, there's, Go yeah, just another kind of interesting NFL note. Darren Ravel uh, tweeting out that the NFL sponsorship rules for the 2020 draft could end up costing players the ability to you know, make some money from their draft parties. But basically they were told, look, everything there must be approved by the NFL. Do not have any products displaying brands or logos that have not been approved by the NFL within camera range of your feed for the NFL draft broadcast. Uh, they will receive a welcome kit of products from NFL partners, uh, Pepsi, Mountain Dew, Bubbly, Gatorade, Frito-Lay snacks, uh, Mars candy will also be included. And that, that's what they want out there. They do not want um, somebody who is a, non-NFL partner being displayed on these these draft days. They, they consider the players, even though they haven't signed a contract, to be a part of the NFL at this point. And that'll be interesting because people have done that in the past to get one-off deals. And, and basically they were told, look, you, if you mess around with it, not going to be shown, so, so don't do it. So in, the, in years past, how did they get around this? Um, it, this is one in 2017. Here's an example. They have, uh, marketers for Missouri defensive end Charles Harris sold a deal to Jack Link's beef jerky to have the Sasquatch appear in the background of his shot when he got drafted. Jack Link's oh. didn't have an official deal with the league. Uh, last year ESPN told agents they would not take a home feed from a player if there was a sponsor or logo in the camera's path. Um, so there were always, it says always small on-screen deals for draftees that changed in 15 when Jameis and Mariota, uh, elected to stay home instead of go to the draft. Both were paid to promote Beats by Dre, a competitor of the league's official sponsor, Bose. So they guys, I, I think it's, it sounds like this is something that's been building. People have been doing a good, you know, going around it, and then they had to put a, a stop to it. So this isn't something necessarily that has anything to do with the nature of this draft, rather just the building towards well, this end. Well, in this draft, though, the difference is in this draft – 100% of the top prospects will not be at the draft. They will all be in their homes. And so the most right. marketable names in this draft will, would all have been, had the opportunity to be approached by sponsors. Hey, put, you know, let's use this, et cetera, because this is going to be, this is going to be the most watched NFL draft in history. I think by, yeah, a, I think you're a, right by a wide margin. So I think that's what they're trying to, to shut that down immediately. Yeah. That's interesting. That's the way it's going to go. New, new uncharted waters for everybody on this thing, guys, in terms of, of how this thing's going to look and what it's going to all be about. We'll go to the positional breakdown. We'll hit special teams coming up next. Some familiar faces we expect back and some new names in the mix on the return front. We get to that coming up next. Listen to Cleveland Browns Daily on 850 ESPN Cleveland. <laughs> You're listening to Cleveland Browns Daily on 850 ESPN Cleveland.
Folks, you've heard me talk about Alex at Northeast Factory Direct all the time. We don't talk about shopping online that much, though. Right now, more and more people are buying furniture on their website. So when you're making a purchase online at northeastfactorydirect.com, this is a simple way to get a little more off. Enter the code RADIO at checkout. You'll receive additional 25 bucks off. Not only do they have essential building materials like kitchen cabinets, sinks, vanities, but also important sanitary products for pools and spas like filters, pumps, and cleaners. If you need furniture, mattresses, home office furniture, patio furniture, bedding, you can shop from the comfort of your home online at northeastfactorydirect.com. You can still contact their stores to schedule an appointment, a virtual tour, or a remote virtual consultation. It is that easy to do. Alex would love to hear from you. If you have a question, just call him or text him on his personal cell phone, 216-288-1808. That is 216-288-1808. Our good friends at Northeast Factory Direct. All right, Z, our final positional breakdown of the post-free agency spotlight. Today we hit special teams. Uh, our specialists as of today, Austin Seibert, Jamie Gillen, the Scottish Hammer, Charlie Hewlett there as well. And in terms of return, there's a lot of names, but I think JoJo Natson's the one that jumps out as the guy who's probably going to take it. Uh, this is a group that had a pretty big overhaul uh, from the previous year to last year in terms of starting two rookies, an all-rookie battery on on kick on field goals with, with Seibert and Gillen, uh, and now will be going into their second year with the Browns yeah it's look and you've got a great special teams coordinator going into his second year with the Browns and Mike Prefer and so you feel very good about this group you know your your main battery as you mentioned you got guys going to second year Scottish Hammer who had a phenomenal season at one point was the AFC special teams player of the week early in the year Austin Seibert coming off of a, a good rookie year as well and you know, Charlie Hewlett, who has been a, a mainstay, is your long snapper. So that battery, that's all going to stay the same. Uh, I don't even expect there to be competition. You'll get maybe a leg in during camp because that's what, you know, you always do. But you have young, talented players. And Seibert, as the season went on, I thought got better and really bounced back after what was kind of a little bit of a yeah. shaky training camp. Finishing the year 25 of 29 on field goals. Uh, got to get better on those extra points, though, 30 of 35. And I, and I believe that he will. Um this is it, it's a good group. The, the biggest, the one thing that was missing, coverage teams were great, and you got a lot of core special teams players back. You added a few as well in, in this free agent period, but the coverage teams were great. The issue really came down to the return game, and that's why JoJo Natson was brought in. And we speculated, you know, when teams go to this fifty-five man roster, that you're going to see, you know, return specialists maybe could become a little bit more in vogue because you can use something uh, on a guy that's going to touch the ball a handful of times a game and actually impact the game for you. And Natson last year, both his punt return average and kick return average were better than our team averages. And so uh, I think that was something they wanted to address. I know that Mike Prefer had a lot of respect for him when we played the Rams and talked about him prior to that game. And so I think that now you're going to see that be more of a priority for the Browns and, and that's going to be an emphasis. And now you've got a guy that you, you hope can deliver on that for you. Absolutely. And I want to go back to, to cyber for a second, because there were, uh, there were skittish moments in camp last year. One, that was one of the most remarkable things uh, that Preef was able to do was to uh, the idea that, that he had the ability to, to get a, an all rookie battery and the hammer had never held He'd never held for kicks. Never. And, and, and we went week one with a guy who had never held for kicks, holding kicks. And and Seibert, who started camp and, and was shaky, uh, was really better. came around. Yeah, really, really came around under 
under Preef, and um, and you saw those two grow. And uh, the hammer was just incredible, pretty much from Jump Street when it came to to his ability to punt. Um, but we had we had we had him on the coaching show a lot last year, and and the idea that he never held a kick before uh, was was a pretty wild thing to to try to wrap your head around. Yeah, and not only that, the guy, he changed the way that he punted prior to week one from a three-step oh, to right. a two-step, something he had never done before. Uh, it right. was just kind of – it was a remarkable thing, and they knew they had a very special uh, talent in, in Jamie Gillen. They got him. That's why, of course, the great Britton Cole, who went on to have a, a wonderful yep. season with the Minnesota Vikings, and they re-signed him uh, to keep him there. That's why, you know, stuff like that, uh, it happened because he was that kind of a talent and they really wanted to give him an opportunity to, to blossom. It could be the punter here for decades. So it, it is a good young battery. There are not a lot of question marks. I certainly don't expect to see any draft picks made on specialists. Not to say that JoJo Natson is, you know, locked in as the returner. I'm sure if there's a guy that, you know, comes up at the right spot that can help you on this team and also has return skills, you'll give him a look. But you feel pretty good about this, and I think the main reason we all feel so good about our special teams unit is uh, the, the man Mike Prefer and, and what he yep. can do and what he's proven he can do with an inexperienced group. And now he's going to have another year along with Doug Coleman, the special t- assistant special teams coach. That I think you're in great shape there, and I think it's going to continue to be something that was a negative for the Browns for a long time will be a net positive. And when you know, I think this offense takes off, this defense, if it can be what we what we hope it is, you no, know, that's why this team can be pretty good because you can be very sound and all three phases yeah yeah you really can and and that was really the only thing and you touched on this earlier it's really the only thing missing was a a home run hitter uh and a real threat at, at punt and kick return with somebody who you felt who could take it uh at any point and and hopefully that's something you can find now i think you make an interesting point when you talk about uh the extra extra couple of guys on the roster now you can dedicate to that um there's a lot of guys who flash in those roles i think about Sheehy giuseppe last year not to say that he would have he would have been a guy but he's a guy who gets a different look and your approach to somebody like that is different now with this new CBA that it would have been under the previous one, because you, there's no way with the roster limits that we had a year ago under the former CBA that you could have a guy whose only skill was to return kicks and punts or punts exclusively, you right. know, five, six times a game. And now that opens it up. And so now guys who uh, that really is their specialty, those type of guys, I think that's the biggest beneficiary of the new CBA is that is the return guy spot. No doubt about it, and also, and I would say the alignment because now you know there's going to be eight yeah. that have to be carried on on opening day and and on your active roster. So, but yeah, I think it brings in a specialist, what, a guy that has one role that he is exceptional at that maybe isn't going to be a part of your eleven on offense or your eleven on defense, but brings something to the table that is unique and special. And I think it, you're right; it, it's opened it up, and you know that's kind of gone away that specialized returner. Yeah. I mean, Cordero Patterson, who had a couple good returns, I want to say, as a rookie, you know, with the Vikings, and and he's been a solid returner, but not like the people that came before. When you're talking about prime Devin Hester, which was the previous decade, Dante Hall, we just have a Josh Cribbs yeah. uh, with the Browns. You haven't had those kind of guys in a long time, and maybe this will create an opportunity for some of these guys. You wonder what would have happened if it was a 55-man roster last year with with Sheehy? Would he have gotten a shot? You know, Damon yeah. Sheehy, Giuseppe, would he have maybe gotten a chance? Now he didn't land anywhere, and maybe this year. He does, but, you know, he had one of the great moments of the preseason last year. His return for a touchdown was uh, unbelievable. Well, like I, like I was just saying about him, that I think what it does is it changes the way you look at him. Of course. Like, you look at him differently in camp. You're not looking at him like, oh, we got to try and make him a receiver. You just say, hey, go do that. 
Go be that. the best at that. That's different. And it, again, that's something else. And and why do you think that that was a, that was something that went away in the league? Because again, you know, back in our day, this there were just guys who returned kicks and punts. Like that was the job. I remember all the way back the the Lions with Mel Gray was a kick and punt returner. Like there were guys who that was their job was to return kicks and punts. Um, and then it was something that phased out. Um, in the 2010s, you mentioned Hester and Hall, as certainly guys who did it. Hester, I think, did it better than anybody in the history sure. of the league, and will probably be the last, pretty much strictly return guy to get into the Hall of Fame. Um, but, but there—that's a position that had there hasn't been as much of that the last decade. And part of it is, you know, the kickoff is in not being legislated out of the game, but you have teams that can absolutely kick it out of the end zone every time if they want to, and then you have the teams now that have gotten so good at hitting that high you know, pooch that comes down right around the one and it's difficult to generate a return there. It's the rules are dead. There's no more wedge blocking. So it's a much more difficult skill to have. But if you have a guy that can consistently get it out there for you, it gives you an advantage and shift the field. Even if you get a, a four good punt returns in a season, which means in four different games, you've shifted the field position on a drive. That can be the difference in between winning and losing those games. And four games is the difference between being 10 and six and six and 10. I mean, it's, yeah. that's how fine the line is in the NFL. And so you're looking for any advantage that you can get. And I think teams just felt with only, you know, 46 guys up on game day, they couldn't afford one of those rosters to be a guy that was just a pure specialist anymore in a, in a field that was in some ways legislated, you know, not necessarily out of the game, but certainly changed in terms of its impact that it could have, especially specifically with kick returns. So this got me thinking about, Hester when we were talking about return specialist. Yep. In 2010, my guy averaged 17 yards a punt return, Jeez. three punt return touchdowns. Jeez. He averaged 35.6 a kick return. Yep. Amazing. And Think it about was that. Like I said, a different That's game, but crazy. He's, I guarantee sure. there might not have been another person within five yards of him in punt returning or kick returning that year. 17 one 17, punt return? I mean, nine's a great punt return average. Yeah, took three to the barn and averaged 17. That's nuts on a, from a punt return standpoint. He's the best I've ever seen do it. Um, and what do you think about that? You think he's a haul? I think so. He should be. I think he's the best to ever do something that was actually a pretty important thing. So, yeah, I, I would say, yes, he is a Hall of Famer. Three punt yeah, return touchdowns. Is... He lapped the – like Dante Hall's best year, he lapped it. I mean, it's, the 35.6 a kick return is, doesn't even make sense. No. Hall's it, it, best was about was 26. Okay. And I'm looking up right here, which I think will be very interesting. Um, so last year, you said he had three punt return touchdowns in one season. Last yeah. year in the NFL, there were seven punt returns for touchdowns in the entire year. In the whole year. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, well, of, there you of, go. Of guys, of guys who returned more than 20 punts last season, only Braxton Berrios averaged more than 10 yards of return. He was at 11.4. Yeah. Deontay so Johnson six... from Pitt returned exactly 20, was at 12.4. Jeez. Six times in Hester's career, he averaged more than 12.8. He had 15.5, 17.1, 16.2, 14.2, uh, and 13.3 average. A total of 14 punt return touchdowns in his career. 
All right, here's another one for you. So in the NFL last year, there were a grand total of five kickoff returns for touchdowns, a grand total of five of guys who had at least 25, we'll call it more than 20 kickoff returns. The leader in the NFL would have been uh, Deontay Harris at 26.8. Okay. Next would have been Andre Roberts, 26.6. Nicole Hardiman, 26.1. But you're talking, what do you say, 35 and 17? 35.6. Yeah, nobody's even close to that. That's his best year. His second best year is 27.6 on 52 returns. I see. Okay, uh, so okay, that's – there you go. Here, That's another thing. So 52 returns you just said. Yeah. The leader in the NFL last year in terms of kickoff returns, in, in terms of attempts, had 32. Only seven people had 20 or more. So in wow. many ways, it's been taken. Chances. You're not getting chances. And when you do, they're typically those short kicks that are down to the one or you're mm-hmm. bringing it out from four or five yards deep and trying to make something happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a play, and it's really one of the most exciting plays. I mean, the punt is one of the most exciting plays. The return on that has, has delivered some of the great moments uh, in NFL history. Certainly, yeah. when you think—I mean, the many that I can think of uh, off, on, on punt return touchdowns that are that swing a game in a second, and and hopefully you get back to that because it's it's a game-changing play. It really is, and it certainly is a lot of fun. Um, all right, coming up next, we are on the eve of the jersey reveal, and did the boys from Madden inadvertently drop the Chargers designs? Did you see this, Z? No, but I I'm excited. You oh. piqued my interest. Oh, we get to that coming up next. CBDA 50 ESPN Cleveland. You're listening to Cleveland Browns Daily on 850 ESPN Cleveland. All right, final segment of CBD here tomorrow. Big, big day. Uh, for us as we drop the new uniforms that'll happen around high noon uh, we will be here at one to chronicle all of it to go over with a fine-tooth comb uh, it's an exciting time there's a lot of hard work with really smart people yep. that get to a point where you can uh, have something that you're very proud of and frankly there can be times where you put in a lot of hard work with really smart people and you end up with something that is panned universally. We've seen it. I, I doubt that the people uh, in Atlanta, yeah, I, I wasn't here at that time, but it, you saw the people in Atlanta who probably thought they crushed it and were thrilled to be able to unveil those things. And then they're seen and they go, what, what are you doing? Um, so it's a tricky thing. It's a really tough, tricky thing to do. Um, and, and you try to strike a balance between, especially when you're, when you, you don't want to be somebody who does this a lot. What you want to be is somebody who has a consistent look. And so that's what you're trying to accomplish. I would think with this is something that where you have a brand and yeah, right. And and that's why I think you're seeing, you're going to see what you see tomorrow with the Cleveland Browns. I will say this. I've talked to now multiple players who have played for the Falcons over the years. Uh, they all think the uniform that we think is the best is the best. All of them, 100%. The Dion one? Yes, the Jeff George. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it, it is, is the best. It's just, it's, it's just sometimes so... it's not that hard. But there's also, I think the thing that you have to be careful about when you're somebody who's in charge of something like this is you have to be careful about, because I'm sure there's a natural feeling of, well, I'm going to do something that's never been done. Yep. And that's not necessarily the job. The job isn't to do something that's never been done unless you crush it. Um, but the the miss on that is enormous. 
it can be an enormous miss. And and what you have to remember with most fans is that most fans, when you think of a football, you think of a football team, you think of a football brand, college pro, whatever. What mostly draws us back to it is nostalgia. Yep. It's the positive memories that we get from looking at it. I think that I don't think it's a coincidence that the uniforms that you and I almost universally prefer are the ones from either our youth or the ones that even super precede our youth. Preceded it. Yep. Those are the ones that we think that that bring the warm and fuzzies back, right? And I think that's why if you think of the most the most effective brands in football in general, many I mean, you think of the NFL ones are known, but many are also in college. When you think about Penn State or Notre Dame or Ohio State or Alabama or Michigan, they look the same for generations. Um, there's something to that. If you think about it in the NFL, the, the, the franchises that have been the most successful also typically look the same. I mean, there's very, been very little change to the Bears or the Steelers or the, the Packers or the Raiders. The 49ers, very minimal. The Cowboys, very minimal. Changes to those uniforms. They are brands that are known, and that is the challenge when you're trying to redesign a uniform. If that's your hire, redesign a brand, you want to do something that's unique and your own, but at the same time, you don't want to overthink it because that's how you end up with a gradient like the Falcons have. <laughs> right. But they're the first one ever. No, you're you're absolutely right about that, and that's why – to your point, you haven't seen change in the iconic ones, and that's why I think the Browns are, are going to go back to what we would consider to be more of their iconic look, and uh, that's I think it, that's a good thing. I mean, the 49ers look so much better wearing their old uniforms than anything yeah. that they would have come up with, you know, since then. So it, it sometimes they, it, it's hard because you want to put your stamp on things, you sure. want to leave your mark. But sometimes if it ain't broke, you do not have to fix it. And I know you are thinking that if what we're seeing from a Madden screenshot is real, and of course right. no, we don't know that it is, but we don't know. you believe the Chargers, if they have a powder blue helmet, have have gone a step too far. I think it's a bridge too far, brother. Uh, yeah. I think you've got what is probably uh, the Lance Allworth powder blue is probably a top five uniform in the history of sports with the white hat, with the numbers underneath the, the lightning bolt. It's just, it's perfect. And, and they, there's a reason that you were as a Jersey collector, the Lance Allworth 19 chargers Jersey, when Mitchell and S first reproduced that thing in the early two thousands, that was the one everybody had to have. Of course. Was that one because it's spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> it's a spectacular uniform. And so if you have an ability to wear that, and especially if you're them and you've resisted wearing them for much of your history since the Spanos family's had it, if you have the ability to wear that, then damn it, wear it. <laughs> like, you don't have to overthink it. And if this Madden uh, image is true, it's not so much that I hate the look of it. They're basically in an all-powder blue with a powder blue hat. It's just you had the opportunity for perfection and you chose to try to put your own stamp on it where it doesn't have to be that complicated. It doesn't, and you're you're right. They have an absolute beaut in in that in the Lance Allworth in that era, uh, and and there's no reason to do. You don't have to do anything else. Now, I I on the other hand, I I didn't mind that blue helmet. I didn't think that looked bad at all. Um, As a one, I don't either in the vacuum. But when you have the ability to wear the other one and you sure. chose this, that's nonsense. The one thing I will say though is I think that the blue helmet would look spectacular over the white jersey with the powder blue numbers and stripes and the powder blue yeah. pants, that would be a better what? look than you can achieve with the white helmet with that one. Yeah, I don't, I don't, have a, I don't know that I have a problem with that. That might be yeah. okay to do it that way. 
Uh, the all powder blue top to bottom as they're wearing in there. No, it's much. too much. Looks too much. Looks a little bit like North Carolina a little bit. I know the one that a lot of people are worried about is the Rams. Uh, that there's big concern with with what the Rams have done here because I think what that fan base was hoping for is that they would get back to wearing what they wore during the Jack Youngblood, Eric Dickerson, or potentially even the Deacon Jones uh, blue and white, that they would attempt to go back to that. But there is concern, and that's been the assumption, is that that's what they would do. But there's some mixed messaging now coming out that maybe they're trying to do a modern variation of that, and that can lead to trouble. Right. And that's where you have to hopefully have, you know, some cooler heads in the room and say, OK, let's we've got some great stuff here. And, you know, that's the hard part, right? It's taking the classic and modernizing it is that's where sometimes you run into a little bit of trouble. And so sometimes it's just simple to go with, listen, the classics are the classic. There's a reason that throwback retro jerseys have yeah. ha- always are in style. They always are because they're pretty good. And as you said, they tap into the nostalgia that people have. Yeah, I think the the two that have done it the best the modern interpretation of the classic are the Lions, their current modern one of the classic with the Honolulu blue, and the Vikings' uh, current uniform is a really clean uniform that has a lot of the similarities of their of their historical uniforms, but it's a modern take on it. I think that's those two are the ones that jump out to me, and I say, okay, they did a pretty good job with both of those. Yeah, right, and that's that's the goal, right? Isn't that that's the whole that's yep. the whole point, and that's what you want to do. The one that I'm curious to see is, is the Patriots, right? Because they have Nothing a classic that I love. <laughs> Their modern stuff, even going back to the Bledsoe era, I think is not great. But yep. what are they get? Where do they go? Do they go back more to the classic, or do they know that look, this is synonymous with winning and excellence? Because that's the so, truth: is that brand that no they question. currently have is synonymous with the greatest professional fr- football franchise of all time, the greatest run right. period. Yes, that's true. And I, I think from what I'm hearing from them, I saw Mike Reese with this report in, in Boston that, that the flying Elvis is staying on the helmet. Yep, we so, talked about that, yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like it's going to be a, a minimal change. And I say, the one no. thing I agree. Give me the one path. thing that I will say is encouraging, though, and it's something to pay attention to with all these uniform drops, is the potential for a second helmet shell next year. Yes. There could be something to that. Right. So that's something to pay attention to. We're going to have some fun tomorrow. It's going to be fun. Jersey yes. drop, and then we will do the show and have some fun with that. And, of course, uh, the net proceeds going to a fantastic cause. So it's going to be a fun day to be a Cleveland Brown tomorrow. Z, until tomorrow, my friend. Yes, indeed. Looking forward to it, brother. Next level is next. CBD, 850 ESPN Cleveland. You've been listening to Cleveland Browns Daily, a production of the Cleveland Browns and ESPN 850 WKNR.